0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Engaging History. This is Episode 11. Christopher Kinsella here again, author of Chain of Deception. Remember that my podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. The podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I'll discuss. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio, the purpose of my podcast in general are to discuss history in a way that is engaging and interesting. I do want to give uh, today a shout out and thank you to Donovan Kelly for his recommendation of a book that he sent me called A Higher Call, an incredible true story of combat and chivalry in the war-torn skies of World War II. Uh, Part of the reason, too, that I recommend that book, I have not yet read it myself, but I'm looking forward to it, as out of 5,522 ratings as of May 5th, 2020, it was a full five stars. And I know our book review editors and our book judges, et cetera, can give their opinion, and I don't know where they stand on this, but when it's us commoners that read things and give the reviews, to me, in some cases, that's the most telling of all. So thank you again, Donovan Kelly, on that one. All right, so let's get back to where we were at. We started the last podcast by discussing the characteristics of Rome, their attempt to try to understand this idea called power. We looked at the origin of their civilization around 700 BC, and we quickly plunged in in their infancy to problems with or their perceived problems with neighbors to the south over the Mediterranean Sea, that being the Carthaginians. We quickly went over how the Romans went over to war with the uh, Carthaginians in the First Punic War, 262 to 238 BC, and then once again there would be a, uh, a Philip of Macedon within their ranks that would try to convince them that, hey, our enemy's not done with us yet. Just because they couldn't conquer us and they went back with their tail between their legs doesn't mean it's over. But like the people in Greece that followed Philip, people weren't willing to follow Hamilcar Barca. So he was exiled, but nevertheless, for his people, his cause, and his nation, he still developed an army in order to try to enact revenge against Rome. Like Philip, Hamilcar would die before he realized that dream. So it would fall once again, not to his eldest son, Hasdrubal, but to Hannibal, the Hannibal that we know of in military history. So, Hannibal, as we talked about before, he'll be the one that will move into northern Rome with that army and elephants along with it. As we talked about before, he attempted to move with over three dozen elephants. Only two would survive intact and with the cargo uh, on top of their backs, able for the Carthaginian Rome, uh, Carthaginian army to use. Excuse me. From there... However, again, that was the good news, that he lost over 80% of all of his supplies. The bad news, though, in comparison, is the fact that the 42,000-strong Roman army was just across the Trebia River as winter was beginning to take hold in December of 218 BC. The Carthaginians only numbered 30,000 at best, so they were going to be outnumbered by over 12,000 Roman soldiers. How and why would the Carthaginians decide to attack? What would be Hannibal's overture of war to bring this, to bring this uh, war on in this battle here? It becomes known as the Trebi River. If you notice, the Romans, like the Persians, are attempting to stop their enemy in a river valley. Once again, it's still a smart thing to do. Yes, we've already seen and heard how Alexander outdid that at the Granicus River and the Isis River, but it doesn't matter. You still stop an enemy at the most strategic point, and that's what the Romans were doing. The Romans were also smart enough to realize that Hannibal may try the tricks of Alexander and Sun Tzu that he might, have, they, he might have one of their tricks up his sleeve as well. So they stand in block formation with the cavalry on opposite side to be able to su- supplement, protect, and support the infantry. It was a formidable block of forces that the Romans had, had uh, initiated. However, weather seemed to throw a curveball into the soon-to-be battle. In the middle of the day... On December 18th, 218 BC, a blinding snowstorm started coming along the Trebia River Valley to the point that the soldiers were lucky if they could see their hand in front of their own faces. It was heard through Carthaginian scouts that the Romans were simply backing down and attempting to call it a day. In other words, that the battle wouldn't be fought today. Hannibal could not afford to lose that opportunity. So in this blinding snowstorm, Hannibal moves his army with the infantry in the center and the cavalry on the opposite side, moves into the cross the Trabia River Valley, up the other side as quietly as possible. Remember, folks, that snow is a fantastic insulator. And that's what Hannibal was banking on. We have no reason to believe that he ever would have tried something like this in a, in a typical clear day. But snow has a wonderful way of muffling noise, especially man-made noise, threatening noise. And because of that, Hannibal, upon getting to the other side of the Trebia River Valley, came across the first signs of the Roman camp and then issued the call to charge it was an absolute bloodbath at the end of the couple of hour battle the romans would lose anywhere from 26 to 32000 soldiers while the carthaginians would only lose four to 5000 of their own this once again underscores the the supreme importance of what we call the element of surprise so that was again in december of 20 20- Excuse me, December 18th, 218 BC. And from there, Hannibal proceeds to travel down the coast of Italy, modern day Italy, the coast of the Roman Republic. And he's stopped once again the following summer at Lake Trasimeno. This is also known as to some as the Battle of Lake Trasimene or the Battle at Trasimene. T R A S I M E N O is the spelling. So June 24th, 217 B.C. Hannibal sees a wide open plain on the left side of this beautiful lake, a lake that is still there in Italy to this day. And on this wide open plain is would have been the logical place for Hannibal to camp. However, he chose not to. Hannibal went through the foothills and the edge of the lake and decided to camp at the far side of the lake, towards the upper middle closer to the right side of the lake. Hannibal didn't have much room there. His forces were kind of cramped. It was an illogical place for him to have chosen to camp because he has the mountains right behind him, to the right of him, and to the left is the lake. He cornered himself in, essentially. But Hannibal chose that location, not because of where the end point was, but because of what you had to do to get there in order for hannibal to have left the wide open plain to the left and walked around the several miles to the right of the lake the foothills into the mountains left a very small path where people could travel so you if you went too far to the right you were going to be in the lake if you went too far to the left you'd be caught up in the brush and the foothills so a wide open area Was nowhere to be found, to the point that some of the areas in the northern part of the lake were so thin that people could only walk uh, one uh, beside one another, two at a time. That's how thin it was, and that's the advantage that Hannibal saw. So as Hannibal camped out, he had many injured soldiers from the prior battle last year in 218 BC. As a result, the Romans realized they would not need as many soldiers to simply wipe out a Carthaginian camp that had already on their own cornered themselves. So they only sent in 30,000 Roman soldiers to wipe the Carthaginians out. Now, even though Hannibal, for whatever reason the Romans couldn't understand, decided to corner himself into this embankment of mountains and then the lake on the other side, the Romans weren't stupid. This is still a man that caught us by surprise less than a year ago. They weren't going to be fooled a second time. So the Romans sent out scouts in the early evening hours along the lake to see what the Carthaginians were doing with those huge bonfires. And it was there that this pattern seemed to develop, that Hannibal was having the soldiers practice at night and then sleep during the day. Now, how stupid can you get? You choose the worst location for, you to, for your soldiers to bank up to sleep for the night, and now you're having them work at night and then sleep during the day. Well, the Romans, they weren't going to look for any further gift horse than this. Early in the morning of June 24th, 217 BC, the Romans had decided that, that upon sunrise that the entire 30,000 Roman army would be ready to pour into the Carthaginian camp. And it would be there that Hannibal would meet his fate. So during the darkness, starting around 2 o'clock in the morning, the Romans started heading out across the northern part of the lake to Hannibal's camp. As I mentioned earlier, the Romans realized, whoops, getting a little tight here. We really have to thin ourselves out. Remember that you can't be caught going into the brush of the trees because a human being stepping on a stick is a telltale noise that you've got an enemy coming. You can't afford to let your soldiers get into the water because, of course, that's going to make noise as well. So the soldiers are not only thinned out, but they're separated out. Can you imagine the look on their faces when the sun rose the next morning and those bonfires still raging with all of those Carthaginian soldiers supposedly doing their practice formations in front of the fire, only to the Romans' surprise that the Carthaginians were never there. The soldiers that were going through their formations and drill practices were nothing more than a handful of injured soldiers that were parading back and forth as they had been for the past several nights. By the time the Romans could figure out where the Carthaginian army was, it would be too late. For out of those foothills, the Roman army was blindsided and lambasted by the Carthaginian army. Hannibal broadsided the entire Roman army. To put this into perspective, The Carthaginians would lose anywhere from 1,500 if you believe the Carthaginian numbers up to 2,500 if you believe the Roman numbers. But nobody disputes the Roman losses. All 30,000 were either killed or captured. To date, there has never been a worse route, a worse blindside in military history, and that includes all of the conflicts of the 20th century. From there, he sealed up the peninsula. There was little resistance now as Hannibal was able to continue to march south all the way through the modern boot of Italy and up the other side. Hannibal stopped. This took a little while to do, a little more than a year before Hannibal would be stopped again at what became known as the Battle of Cannae in 215 BC, August 2nd. This time, Hannibal was able to amass a little bit of a larger army at 50,000. The Romans, however, were going to hold back about 30,000 and only put about 56,000 in Hannibal's way. Unfortunately, the Carthaginians got there first. Cannae was a simple landscape. There was a high ground and a broad sloping area to the low ground. The high ground was closer to Rome proper, Hannibal's ultimate destination. To take the low ground, Hannibal would have to go out of his way, and that's exactly the location that Hannibal chose. The Romans were beside themselves with belief that this moron would have the opportunity to seize the high ground because they got there first, and nominally gives that up and takes the low ground. So the Romans thought, okay, he got us at the Trebia River. He got us at Lake Trasimene. But this time, whether he's purposely taken the low ground or not, uh-uh, we've got him this time. So the Romans pour their additional 30,000 soldiers to this battle. In the end, right before the battle would begin, the Romans would be using every soldier that they had, 86,400. The Romans also had wised up to Hannibal's wise. No more is Hannibal going to take advantage of us through bad weather because it's August. Other than maybe a severe thunderstorm, Mother Nature's not going to benefit Hannibal this time around. And as at the lake, no, no, no. The Roman army... They've got the high ground and they're not moving. Hannibal, you can starve to death down there before we're going to worry about even attempting to come down to you. You want Rome? This is what you're after? Then you know where you got to go. Come and get it. And for that reason, the Roman army stayed put for quite some time. Hannibal, on the other hand, He did know what he was doing. And he, again, being outnumbered now significantly, again, 50,000 on Hannibal's side versus 86,400 Romans. That's a sizable difference. So Hannibal drew up the plans, reviewed them with the top commanders, who couldn't help but smile. But you couldn't help them too if they felt a little bit nervous. So the leading edge of Hannibal's forces Started to march up that deadly slope to attempt to attack the Romans on their high ground, with them having the home field advantage. As Hannibal approached the high ground, he told his soldiers to essentially look at the Roman soldiers standing up with their spears drawn in block formation and to stop, to look uneasy to try to look between the legs and the bodies of the Roman soldiers. And it would be there that the leading edge of the Carthaginian soldiers would look to the right and to the left and communicate that I think we're outnumbered. There's no way we're going to be able to penetrate this, stand down, and then make a call for retreat. And that's exactly what Hannibal wanted them to do. And as that meager block formation attempted to go up the hill, they did exactly as they were instructed to do. And as they started to back down the hill, the Romans were chomping at the bit to attack, but they were told to stay still. We don't know which one of the Roman soldiers it was, but one of them broke the formation couldn't hold himself back, and took his spear and charged down towards the Carthaginians. And with that, the bulk of the 86,400 Roman soldiers also poured in. Right at that moment, the Carthaginians' army split into two wide-open flanks, allowing the Roman army to pour into the jaws of death as the Carthaginian forces compressed on both sides, Wiping the Roman army out. And when I say wiping the Roman army out, that is not an understatement. The entire 86,400 soldiers never went back to Rome. They were either dead or prisoner of war. Out of Hannibal's 50,000 soldiers, he lost 5,700. Still a sizable number, but nothing compared to the Romans. Now, if at this conclusion of the last and third third and last battle of of Hannibal, we only have one more left with him. But if those of you that are not at all into military history and think, oh, my gosh, is that's all these podcasts are about is fighting, fighting, fighting. Well, other than the Battle of Zama, which is left, one left, that's really going to be the end of it in terms of talking about military history for this entire series of, podca- of podcasts on the first half of world history take me if you listen to my podcast that'll eventually be posting on the second half of world history both uh, halves of American history, we will then venture once again into some military battles. It's never again for, for any other reason than just to show how human, the human mind was evolving. I'm not into the specific weapons, the specifics of who stood where, nearly as much as the, the thoughts and the reasoning behind it, why the human mind behaves the way it does. So, clearly, Hannibal like Alexander, has some serious massive trophies to show his people back home. But unlike Alexander, who was done at the end of Gagamela, technically Hannibal's not done. He still has to get to Rome proper. You've heard of the slogan for Rome, the beautiful city on a hill? Yep, that's Rome. Rome To be taken physically means the soldiers, the Carthaginians, will physically have to work their way up to the top of the peak of that hill in order to annihilate the Roman government. That would be a bloodbath. And Hannibal is smart enough to know that. But this is where we get to this next part, that they're essentially bad news for both sides. Obviously, for Rome, we know what that is. There's no army left. Rome's done. Other than the citizens and elders in the city-state itself, there's no one left to fight. Yeah, there's a few retired commanders, but they're not going to have the manpower and the weapons in order to wipe out of 43,000 strong Carthaginian army growing by the day. But then you might think, well, wait a minute, you said bad news for both sides. What's Hannibal's? The bad news for Hannibal, folks is a page out of the Assyrian playbook that we looked back at a few podcasts ago. Hannibal has broken the law of strategic overstretch. Hannibal is so far from home that his home is vulnerable. Hint, hint. As a result of that, Hannibal has no problem banking out all around that Roman city-state, hoping to eventually starve them into submission. But that's going to take a long time. Remember that Cannae was 216 BC. Hannibal will sit for over 12 years waiting for the Romans to be starved into submission. During that time period, the Romans snuck out their youngest retired Roman general. And that Roman general snuck out across the Mediterranean Sea and set up camp a distance, a a decent distance away from the Carthaginian capital. And over a period of years, this commander, Scipio was his first name, would end up developing a sizable army to be able to eventually threaten the city-state of Carthage and once scipio the general the roman general was confident that he had enough forces in order to be able to wipe out the carthaginian capital he then sent correspondence across the mediterranean sea to hannibal himself with the specifics of the city-state parts of carthage that you'd only know if you were visiting there. Scipio was proving that the Roman enemy was at the footsteps of his home capital. It was at that point that Hannibal panicked, took a small force of soldiers with him, crossed the Mediterranean Sea, and by the middle of October was approaching Carthage. But he would never get that far. For on October 19th, 202 BC, in what became known as almost practically a skirmish rather than a real battle, the Battle of Zama would be fought, where Hannibal's army would be crushed and Hannibal would be pursued. Eventually, the Roman army got their hands on Hannibal, but all they got was a warm, lifeless body. Because Hannibal always afraid that someone might try poisoning him, throughout his life took a variety of poisons in extremely small doses to develop a resistance to them. But there was one poison that he never experimented with, and that was hemlock, the very same poison that a future Nazi field marshal by the name of Erwin Rommel, the desert fox, would also commit suicide with. In October of 1944. So, with a shot of hemlock, Hannibal took his own life. That would end the Second Carthaginian War. The Romans owed everything to this Roman general by the first name of Scipio. So, what could the Romans possibly do to honor Scipio for saving the Roman Republic? You know, the number one named state county street subdivision throughout the United States, you'd probably no big surprise is Washington. Of course, after George Washington, we also have a lot of destinations that are named after Christopher Columbus, Ohio's state capital, Columbus. We have Columbus counties. We have Columbus streets. We have the country of Columbia named after Columbus in South America. And that's, you know, rightly deserved in a lot of ways, don't get me wrong, but there is no human being in the world to have an entire continent named after him. And that was the honor that the Romans gave to Scipio and his family, because Scipio's last name was Africanus. There are debates that the name Africa was rooted in that continent before 202 BC. I say question the sources, because from there on out, that continent would be referred to collectively as Africa. Why? Because that would eventually be the furthest destination that Rome was going to venture across the Mediterranean Sea. It would take decades, folks, and it did take decades, For Rome to be able to build up a massive army once again, while the Carthaginians licked their wounds after that Battle of Zama, they attempted to live their lives peacefully once again, but it was never to be. In what became known as the Third Punic War, lasting a little less than three years, 149 to 146 BC, the Carthaginian Empire was simply wiped off the map. Not only were the Carthaginians killed, women and children sold into slavery, but vast amounts of salt were poured into the soil of the areas where agriculture was possible, simply out of fear that a Carthaginian population could ever rise up once again. As a result, the Carthaginians wiped out that land, but then would later turn around and colonize it anyhow. And this would be when Rome would start to rise and go from that of a republic to empire. But we're not quite there yet. The Carthaginians are gone. The three Punic Wars that I referred to were the first one covered in the last podcast and the second and last two here. We're not quite there with Rome at empire yet because Rome needs to figure out what to do now that it is a much larger city state. A much stronger city-state than it ever was in a prior in its existence, going back to 700 BC. So, what does Rome do after these Punic Wars are brought to a conclusion? What happens to the city-state that is now getting larger and larger? To answer that, we're going to have to tune in to the next podcast. But rather than just waiting for me to hear or for you to hear what uh, is quote unquote is the answer for that. I'm willing to bet you that you'd already be able to know that yourself, just by simply thinking back to our own history. What happened to America after World War I was brought to a conclusion? Every country involved in World War I, except one, their economy was far worse than, than when the war started. That exception? The United States of America. Our America was doing so fantastic, so well, that we called it, the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. There's no decade in all of American history that has more funny and positive nicknames to it than America during the 1920s. What happened to America after World War II drew drew to a close? America would become the powerhouse. We would become the breadbasket of the world. Eight out of ten cars driving everywhere, anywhere in the world came from the streets of the factories of Detroit, We became a powerhouse. What happened to the United States after Christmas Day, 1991, when President George H.W. Bush received a telegram that said, Mr. President, the Soviet Union no longer exists, and by extension, therefore, the Cold War no longer exists. What happened to our economy? It went gangbusters. So is Rome really going to be any different just because this is a nation of people in the ancient world? tune in and find out. For that though, thank you for listening. Again, in the meantime, go to my website, ceconsola.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments. Read my blogs when you have an opportunity and let me know what your thoughts are on that as well. Thanks for listening and have a great day.